0: Father, we pause to talk to you about what you're going to speak to us through the pages of Holy Scripture. We believe that the book we're considering, the Bible, is not like any other piece of literature. It is to be understood as a record of your faithfulness in spite of our failure. And Father, we pray that our hearts would rejoice in the truths that are uncovered that could change our lives. Help us to grasp what Your Spirit is saying in Jesus' name. Amen. Mourning is a sign of maturity. There's something about acknowledging failure that demonstrates Spiritual progress. Jesus said it this way. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. When I first read that, it sounded to me like a contradiction almost. It just didn't make sense. Blessed are those who mourn. Because blessed, I found out, means, oh, how happy. So it does sound like a contradiction. Happy are the unhappy. But there is something greatly comforting when you make a confession. In Proverbs 28, Solomon said, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses them and forsakes them will find mercy. There's something comforting, even cathartic, about admitting need and admitting guilt in order to be cleansed from it. That's what confession essentially is. There was a man who was dying and he brought his wife to the bedside. He said, sweetheart, I'm dying, but I need to confess something to you. I have not been as faithful to you in this marriage as I should have been. And through her tears, she said, I know. And that's why I poisoned you. kind of serves him right. He should have confessed that years before and he could have seen forgiveness and restoration, but he didn't. Well, Nehemiah chapter 9 is essentially a worship service. It is very untypical of a worship service. First of all, it's very long. It's probably one that would not be tolerated today. It's very long, you'll see in a moment, and it is filled with confession. Essentially, it is a record of fasting, repentance, and prayer, followed by a covenant. And that covenant is made in chapter 10. Let's just look at the first few verses to get the setting. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, says, Now on the twenty-fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth, with dust on their heads. Verse 3, And they stood in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God, watch this, for one fourth of the day. And for another fourth they confessed and they worshiped their God. So just try to imagine this, standing three hours as the Word of God is being read, and after the Scriptures are read, Another third of the day, confessing sin and worshiping God. By the way, this is the longest recorded prayer in all of the Bible. There are many recorded prayers, but of all of them, this is the longest. It may have even been longer, but this is what is recorded. I counted the words, 1,177 words in this prayer. You can thank the Lord that we're only going to look at a few. It's a long prayer. But this prayer illustrates a truth found in 2 Corinthians 7 where Paul said, Godly sorrow produces repentance. Godly sorrow produces repentance. You're going to hear the godly sorrow that fills the voice of the one who utters this prayer that has brought repentance to the nation. When my wife was at the stage of conversion she grew up in an atheistic home didn't know anything about God was never told about God and so when she was coming to faith she came across a tract that showed that you put God on the throne of your life and the way she read it everything sort of falls into place so she assumed if I ask God to sit on the throne of my life I'm gonna get what I always wanted That's about all she knew conversion was. So she prayed this simple prayer, really not knowing what she was doing. About a week or so later, she was in a church service. And the whole time, she felt convicted. She felt something wasn't right. Something was desperately wrong. So at the end of the service, she walked forward to the prayer room of that particular church and said to a pastor, Look, I I, I said this thing... And I, I guess I believe, but I'm very confused. And uh, the pastor who was in the prayer room at the time, a buddy of mine from England, said to her in that great English accent, Have you repented of your sins? <laughs> and she said, Have I what? Of my what? She never, uh, what do you, what is, I never heard, what is repent? I've never even pented, let alone repented. <laughs> she knew none of that. So he explained what repentance and faith is all about. That mourning over sin, that recognition, that faith is turning from something to someone. That is the salvation process. Leonard Ravenhill once said, the self-sufficient do not pray. The self-satisfied will not pray. The self-righteous cannot pray. This prayer is the opposite of all of those things. It is filled with remorse, humility, and hope all at the same time. And we learn something from this prayer that we're going to lightly examine. And the main lesson is that failure doesn't have to be the end of your story. This prayer shows us that you can have a bright future in spite of a dark failure, or to put it in, that television commercial language, you've fallen, but you can get up. This prayer shows us that. God meets our failures with His forgiveness and His faithfulness. And so there are four words that have emerged from this prayer as I studied them that I want to share with you because they take us through the stages of the human condition and the divine solution. And those words are failure, Forgiveness, faithfulness, and then following, which is our response. We're going to begin with the first, and that is a recurrent theme in this prayer, and that is simple. Failure is our problem. Failure is our problem. We don't have time to go through it all, but if you look at verse 15... Oh, and by the way, we don't know who's praying this prayer, the text does not say, but there is one translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint version, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew into Greek. And in that version it says, Ezra said these words. So that's the only clue we may have. So I'm going to take, take it that Ezra wrote this or said it, and Nehemiah wrote it down. So I'm going to have you begin in verse 15. Ezra speaking, perhaps. You gave them, God, You gave them, them being His own people, the Jews, You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. And You brought them water out of the rock for their thirst. And You told them to go in and possess the land which You had sworn to give them. Something noteworthy. As Ezra is making this prayer, he is praying historically. He essentially covers just about every period of history up to that point, from creation to captivity. And he's obviously speaking here about the wilderness wanderings for 40 years in the desert. So you provided for them during that time. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not... Heed your commandments. They refused to obey. And they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks. And in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. Verse 26 takes them to another period of their history. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them. And turn them to yourself, to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. Look at the 28th verse. This is after they're now in the land of Canaan. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Over and over again, and there are many more verses that point this out, the theme is the same. Ezra in his prayer is saying, there's one thing we've been really good at, God, and that is sinning. We are really good sinners. Over and over and over again, we keep blowing it. Well, what he mentions here happens to be the problem of all generations of all human beings. The human landscape is littered, scarred by, marked by failure. Summed up in one little verse in Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Not some, not a few. All have sinned. That is our problem. Our problem is failure, or as the Bible calls it, sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Some of you even know that in the New Testament that word sin is the Greek word harmatia, which means to miss a mark or a standard. It was a term, among other things, used in archery for missing the target. So... Think of it this way, you've got 20 arrows, I've got 20 arrows. You fire off those arrows and 19 of them, you're such a good shot, 19 of them go right in the bullseye. But the 20th arrow, and I'm looking at somebody who's a hunter with arrows, the 20th one goes into the bushes. Guess what? You're a sinner, you miss the mark. You miss the mark. I have 20 arrows, I fire 19 of them in all directions because I can't aim very well. But I happened to hit the last one, the 20th arrow, right in the bullseye. I too have missed the mark. I too am a sinner. I'm a better sinner than you are because I missed the mark more times than you have. But all have sinned. Missed the mark. Missed the standard. Fallen short of the glory of God. That's the history of humanity. The history of humanity is the history of sin. The Bible records sin entering and then spreading out In all directions. In fact, though your Bible, if you have a real Bible, probably says Holy Bible on it, it could just as easily say the history of sin. Sin that begins in Genesis and then culminates in Revelation. The Bible is essentially a journal of human failure. Paul. He's good at summing these great themes up. In Romans 5, said, "...by one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned." In other words, sin entered through Adam, and it's been hanging around ever since. Adam is like the kid who can't help himself when he goes up to a pristine lake in the mountains showing that perfect reflection of the mountains on the other side. He can't help himself. I did this once. He took the rock and he throws it on there to skip the stone, and the image is marred on the surface of the mirrored lake. Adam was the kid in history who threw the first rock. And ever since that moment, the image of God became distorted in every single human being. If you try to avoid the concept of sin, if you really want to avoid that concept, uh, you must never read your Bible. I know people don't like the Word. They try to marginalize the idea of sin. It is not popular in too many circles. But you cannot read the Bible without coming across the Word. In fact, the word sin, in all of its forms, sin, sinners, sinning, sins, shows up no less than 629 times in the pages of Scripture. Because the Bible knows the reality. That is our history. We have a nature of sin. Paul put it in Ephesians 3, we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Or we all have a sinful nature. You may have heard of the tale of the scorpion and the turtle. Scorpions can't swim, but one very clever scorpion was wanting to get across a pond, so he found a very unsuspecting turtle, and he said, Mr. Turtle, would you give me a ride across the pond? The turtle said, you've got to be kidding, right? You're a scorpion. You're going to be on my back, and I'm going to make it part way across, and you're going to sting me, and I'm going to drown I'll die and uh, the scorpion said well there's not much logic in that Um, if I were to sting you and kill you and you drown I'm on your back I'm going down with you and the turtle said well you got a point there hop on so that turtle started venturing across the pond about halfway across that scorpion reared that tail and zapped the turtle right in the neck As the turtle started losing muscular control and felt the poison going through its body and started sinking down into the pond, drowning, he reared its head back and said, Do you mind if I ask you a question? Scorpion said, Go ahead. He said, "Um, Didn't you just say that there's no logic in stinging me? So why did you do it? And the scorpion said, It has nothing to do with logic, dear turtle. It's just my nature. This is the nature of humanity. We were, by nature, the children of wrath, or the objects of God's wrath, even as others. We were born with an evil nature. It's important to grasp that. I know it's a basic truth. If we don't grasp that, the world doesn't make sense to us. Once we grasp that, the world makes more sense. I mean, why is it? that after thousands of years we still have so many of the same problems plaguing the human race how come with all of our advancements and technology and education we haven't been able to solve basic problems on earth who do we blame for that Do we blame the liberal media or the democratic party or the republican party or we all like to do that but the real problem is all of us are to blame We've been infected with the sin nature. Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. So our problem is failure. This prayer brings that grand truth to the surface. There's a second lesson, and that is, that may be true, failure is our problem, but forgiveness is our provision. God has a solution for that. Look at verse 17. Ezra praying again, says of his people and their failure, they refused to obey. They were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return back to their bondage. But you are God. There's the pivot. There's the but God moment, but because it's in the first person, but you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Now, now, our failure meets God's forgiveness. And that's where the solution is. Our failure meets God's forgiveness. Our penchant for sin meets His pardon for sin. But you are God. We are failures, but you are God. We have sinned, but you are God. We've blown it over and over and over again in all of our history, but you are God. And as God, He is so much bigger than your failure. In fact, get this. He anticipated your failure. You know, God has never once stood in heaven with His hand over His mouth when He sees people on earth do something and (gasps) go, I can't believe what I just saw. Don't you know that he expected and anticipated that his own people would fail the times they did? Here's how I know that. Years before this, when Moses gave the law from Mount Sinai, he gave a list of blessings and cursings. There's a two chapters, Deuteronomy 28 and 29, filled with things like, If you obey me, says the Lord, here's all the blessings that are going to follow. But if you disobey me, here's all the cursings that are going to follow. And the cursings, by the way, are a chapter and a half of those two chapters. There's more bad things that are going to happen if you blow it and disobey them than the good things. That's what it looks like. So, blessings and cursings. At the end of that little section on the cursings, God says this, When... All these things come upon you. When what things? All the cursings. Not if, when. So he says, if you obey me, this will happen. If you disobey me, that will happen. And when all these things come upon you, and you return, I will bring you back. So God knew from the beginning what they were going to do. Not only that, but fast forward some years when Solomon builds a temple in Jerusalem. And he also has a public prayer with the people gathered around, 1 Kings chapter 8. Now listen to what he says. And when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them, and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive into his own land, far away or near. Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. See, God knew. Even Solomon knew. And in his prayer, reflects that knowledge. When they blow it, now they've blown it. And now they're back from the captivity that was predicted. And Ezra is standing there in this prayer. All of that to say this, your sin and your failure never surprises God. He's ready for it. He's ready for it in this verse. But you are God. Now look at the description. Ready to pardon or forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, we covered that last week in another passage, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. The very first words uttered by Jesus when he was put on the cross were, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Of all the things he could have said, why those words? Because forgiveness is our greatest need. Father, forgive them. You could take the word them, in fact, you should, and substitute your name. Father, forgive Skip. Father, forgive Jerry or Sue or whatever your name, put your name there. Personalize it. Father, forgive them. So Ezra is making confession. It's been said by so many people that you've heard this saying, confession is good for the soul, right? Do you know that every... Psychiatrists or psychologists worth his or her salt Will say the same thing Even the secular world acknowledges that when we do something wrong And we feel bad about a thought or a word or an action When we make confession That the burden is lifted And especially when you make the confession to God Because He can do something about it in cleansing us 1 John chapter 1 John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Something about confession. Confess means more than admit. It's more than, Okay, I did something wrong. I admit it. The word confess means to say the same thing about sin. The idea is, I'm saying the same thing about my failure as God says about my failure. That's confession. Sometimes people say, well, Lord, if I've sinned, I'm sorry. If? Because if you're not sure, why are you talking to God about it in the first place? To confess means more than temporarily feeling bad. It implies I say the same thing about it, which includes my turning from it. Remember, repentance is turning from something and turning to someone. So God is ready to pardon your sin. He's ready to pardon. question is, are you ready to confess your sin? Look at the next... Two words that describe Him. Not only are you ready to pardon, but gracious and merciful. I want to touch on those two attributes. These are two attributes of God, grace and mercy, that sound similar. They sound like they're related, and they are, but they're very different from one another. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Ah, but mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So in mercy, God withholds the judgment you do deserve. In grace, God adds the blessing you don't deserve. Now I have a question for you. Last week we talked about God's justice right and His judgment. God is just, therefore He must judge. Here's the question. How can God be just while at the same time being gracious and merciful? The answer, the cross, the cross, a perfect sinless human being who is also God taking all of the punishment for guilt of a guilty party on himself so that justice is satisfied so that grace and mercy can be extended. So let's say you drive down the street and just for sake of illustration, you're doing 30 miles over the speed limit. I'm not going to ask if you've ever done it because I know you have. Okay, maybe not that much, maybe more. Uh, You get pulled over. The police officer has it right there on the little speed gun. This is how fast you were going. Now, what would the just thing be? What would justice be? You get a ticket. You pay for it. That's justice. Mercy would be the officer saying, you know, you're, you're doing 30 miles over the speed limit. I got you. You're here on the gun. You're nailed. But consider this a warning. I'm not going to give you a ticket, but slow down. Now, that's mercy. He's not giving you what you deserve. You deserve the ticket. He's going to withhold that. Grace would be, and you really have to stretch your imagination, the officer pulling out his wallet, giving you 20 bucks to go get a nice meal. (laughs) Ain't never going to happen on this earth. Now, let's say the police officer says, you're going 30 miles over the speed limit. He writes the ticket, hands it to you. Before you even get your hand on the ticket, he takes it back and he goes, I'm going to pay the fine for you. Now, that's justice. Justice is meted out. A a crime has been committed. A citation has been made. He takes that punishment, withholds judgment from you, and gives you 20 bucks. Now there's justice and mercy and grace. And that's what Jesus did. He took the ticket. All of our tickets on Himself. So that... Justice was done, and He can extend you grace and mercy. You're ready to pardon. You are gracious. You are merciful. Let me take you to a third word, and that is faithfulness. From failure to forgiveness to faithfulness. Faithfulness is our promise. And um, here's what's amazing about this prayer. Ezra figures this out. That God's love is so different than anything we could ever know, in that even though we blow it over and over and over again, He keeps, God keeps pursuing us, keeps following us, keeps forgiving us. So look at verse 18. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves, that's idolatry, the height of it, and said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt, and were great provocations, yet in your manifold mercies, You did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. Verse 30. Yet for many years you had patience with them, and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Here's the truth of that. God's love is unstoppable. God's love is unrelenting, unending, unconditional. It keeps going and keeps pursuing. Even when they ran from you, Ezra would say. Even when they rebelled against you. Even when they repeatedly replaced you with idols. Even when they settled in the land of Canaan and kept rejecting you, you sent them into captivity, but you listened and you brought them back. I was reading this and a verse in the New Testament popped into my mind. It's from first John chapter three, where the apostle says, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us. That's a way of saying, what kind of love is this? What kind of foreign love is this? Who loves like that? Only God. Only God. Now there's somebody in the Bible who actually is an example of this kind of a love. His name is Hosea. He's a prophet in the Old Testament. A lot of people don't know a lot about him. But Hosea had a ministry that I don't think any of us would like. God told Hosea to marry a prostitute. And He says, as you marry this girl and you settle down in your home with her, you're going to love her and at first she's going to love you, but she's going to get restless and she's going to leave the marriage and sleep around town with a whole bunch of other guys. And what you are to do is while she walks out on that marriage is you are to pursue her and give gifts to her through her lovers so she is provided for in her harlotry. And then after she has gone all around town, you bring her back and restore her to the marriage and reconcile the relationship. Who would want that ministry? It was to be a pageant. It was to be a play. Hosea, God would say, you're playing the part of God. Your wife, the prostitute, she's playing the part of the nation of Israel. Because this nation keeps walking out on me, walking out on me, walking out on me. But I keep pursuing them to restore them. By the way, I have, I have a couple friends in real life that I know who were very similar to that story of Hosea. She was a gal that I knew years ago, worked with her. Her husband... And her were married for a period of years. And he left the marriage. He walked out, hooked up with another gal, had an affair with her, moved in with her. And for months, this gal, Kathy, this Christian gal, saying, I believe God's going to restore our marriage. I believe God's going to restore our marriage. Well, months turned into more months, turned into a year or two. And I remember her her faith, and I remember just saying, you know, you you may want to give up on this idea that that's ever going to happen. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. He's long gone. Ah, but God, God's going to do something. God's going to do something. She had more faith than I had. She got a call one day from him. said, I'd like to come back if you'll take me. I'm so sorry for what I did. I want to restore our relationship. She said, I've been waiting for this call. I am so ready to reconcile. And I will forgive you. He said, well, there is a complication. This girl is pregnant. She doesn't want the child. He said, she said, you tell her to have that baby. I will raise that child as if that baby were mine. I had the privilege of doing a second marriage ceremony for them as they reconciled the relationship and raised that child in the fear of God. That was a pageant. That was a picture to me, like Hosea, of the pursuing love of God, the unrelenting love of God. Malcolm Muggeridge used to refer to God as the hound of heaven. I've always liked that term. The hound of heaven is after you, chasing you, loving you. Sometimes I hear people say, I'm searching for God. Newsflash, he's not lost, you are. The truth of the matter is, he has been searching for you. All we like sheep, Isaiah said, have gone astray. Maybe you've been running from God. Maybe you find yourself doing the same thing, the same bad behavior over and over again. And maybe you even feel like you've reached the end of God's patience. Like a message we talked about last week where God said, My spirit will not strive forever with mankind. I will be patient only up to a limit, then I will judge. And maybe you feel you've reached that limit. Hey, just the fact that you may even be concerned about that shows there's hope. If you had no concern whatsoever, that's where the problem lies. The fact that you may be worried that you've reached that point shows that there's hope. Here's what I want you to know. Romans chapter 5, Paul said, Where sin abound, grace abounds much more. Or you could say, Where sin reached the high water mark, grace completely flooded over. There is no dam that sin can erect, that God's grace cannot flow over and flood. Trouble is, we don't know this kind of faithfulness. It's foreign to us. Behold, what manner of love! Who loves like that? It's certainly not like human love. Human love is object-oriented. We love an object based on the object. We see a cute girl, we go, oh, I like that girl. We see a cute guy, I think I like that guy. And then you get to know him, I really like that, I love that person. You're loving the object. You see a car, I like that car. It's object oriented. God's love is vastly different. It is subject oriented. It is not based on the worth or value or beauty of the object. It is based on the character of the subject. God loves you not because you're irresistible. God can't live without you because you're just so awesome. God loves you because He's God, and God is love. And God's love, therefore, is a pursuing, unrelenting, unstoppable love. God's love is like the sun. You can't stop the sun from shining. But you can get out of the sunshine. You could put up an umbrella of sin that that stops you from enjoying the feeling of that sunlight. In the New Testament, Jude said, keep yourselves in the love of God. Most misunderstand that verse as if it says, keep yourself in a place where God can love you. It doesn't say that, doesn't mean that. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Means stay in the sunshine of God's love, enjoying His love, because He loves you no matter what. But keep yourself in a place where you're feeling the effects of that. So our failure is met by God's forgiveness and God's faithfulness, which demands a response from us. And the fourth word is following. That's the response from us. Following is our priority. In verse 32, just quickly look down and notice he uses the word now therefore. Now therefore. I prayed all this. I've acknowledged all this. Now therefore. And let me take you to verse 36 where he says, Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit in its bounty, here we are, servants in it, And it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and cattle at their pleasure. And we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Then the next chapter, which we will not look at, is all the details of the covenant that they make and sign before God. So, this section is like the Romans 12 of Ezra's prayer. Remember Romans 12? It's basically the same format as what we've just read. Uh, Paul has told him in all these chapters about God's mercies and grace and the human condition and divine solution. Then he goes this, says this, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, That you present yourselves, your bodies, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This is the Romans 12 of Ezra's prayer. He's saying, our failure was met by your forgiveness and your faithfulness, and our response is to follow you. We are making a covenant with you to follow you. So it's not like, well, we just feel bad about our future or about our past, but we're going to follow you into into the future. That's repentance. A lot of people mistake and confuse remorse and repentance. They're two very different things. One is a feeling. One is change. One is a sensation. The other is a decision. I heard about a man who wrote the IRS a very interesting letter. He said, "Um, um, I haven't been able to get good sleep since 1970, he said, in this letter. This is a few years back. I haven't been able to get a good night's sleep since 1970. He said, I haven't paid all my income taxes. So in the letter, he included five crisp $100 bills In the letter, he's paying the IRS back. And then he said, And if I still can't sleep, I will send the rest. (laughs) I owe you money. I'm going to pay enough to get a good night's sleep. If that doesn't work, I'm going to pay up. I'm going to pay everything I owe you. I'll pay the rest. Today is the day some of you need to pay the rest. The day you need to step up and finally surrender your life in totality, completely, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's the therefore. Here we are, Lord. Here we stand. We give you our life. Let's pray for that. Father, you know what we're made of, you know our failures how grateful we are for your forgiveness, your pardon. You are ready to pardon. You are gracious and merciful. And you have pursued us. And here we are today in your presence. I pray that some would make the all-important choice of a decision, not just to come to church, but to come to Christ personally. And with our heads bowed, we're closing the service, I want to give you an opportunity to make a commitment, a choice, a decision to follow Christ. If you've come here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus yet personally, you may have gone to a church your whole life, but you've not personalized salvation to you, you've not said yes to Him. I want to give you that opportunity. Some of you maybe wandered away from Him and you need to come back home. But if you want to know that your sins are forgiven, that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life, that when you die, you're going to go to heaven, you want that assurance, I want you to simply raise your hand up. Just so I can see it. I'd love to pray for you, but I want to know who I'm praying for. God bless you to my left. And again to my left. Anybody else? Just raise that hand up. In the back, to my left, I see your hand. Who else? Make the acknowledgement. To my right, yes. And again, right in the middle, to my right. In the balcony. God bless you, all of you guys. Anyone else? If you're outside, raise your hand. Somebody's there to acknowledge you. They'll shout it out. Father, we pray for these... I specifically prayed for those, not hands, but the people who are behind those hands, because behind those hands is a heart, a story, a life that you love. You've been a long time pursuing them. Thank you, Lord, they're here. Thank you, they're responding. Strengthen them in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand, please, to our feet. We're going to quickly close with this last song. And if you raise your hand, I'm going to ask you to do one final thing. It won't take but a moment. Get up from where you're standing. Find the nearest aisle. Come stand in front of this platform where I'm going to lead you in a prayer to receive Christ as Savior and as Lord. This is the the time you make your covenant relationship with God solid. You say yes to that new covenant in the blood of Christ. Get up and come. If you raise your hand, we'll wait for you. If you're in the balcony, quickly come down those stairs. If you're in the family room, come through the door, and just stand right up here in the front. Come now, come quickly. Take just a moment. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, okay? I'm going to ask you to say these words out loud after me. Say them from your heart, mean them, because you're giving your life to Jesus. Let's do business with Him. Say, Lord, I give you my life. I admit I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe in Jesus, that He died on a cross for me, that He rose from the dead, that He's alive right now. I turn from my sin, I turn to Jesus as my Savior. Help me to follow Him as my Lord. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Skip Heitzig of Calvary Church. How will you put the truths that you learned into action in your life? Let us know. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. At and just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.